Well, I'm glad that we can be together again this afternoon to worship our Lord together. And after a time of food and fellowship, we can again feast on the Word of God here together. I had promised, God willing, part two, and that's what we're planning for this afternoon as we consider amazing attributes. And we're going to see that demonstrated a bit more fully here today. I am always happy to be with you all here in Indianapolis. It is one of my homes away from home, I believe, and uh, it's good to be back with you all. And I trust that uh, Pastor will have uh, with his family a wonderful time of rest and relaxation. So I uh, just pray the Lord will use his word. We know that it will never return void it will always accomplish his intended purpose, and that blessing is a promise to us. So I trust that uh, it will do just that. We're going to look at these amazing attributes. We've confined ourselves to a smaller passage of Scripture, but for good reason, because there's so much there in the richness and fullness of these passages. But before I do that, oftentimes when... I preach from a particular book. I like to take a few moments and just give some background to the book itself. And since that was not something that I chose to do this morning, uh, my first point is the background to the book of Micah. Just a few items by way of uh, information or education for you. And uh, one interesting thing I'd like to note at the outset is that Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. And uh, sometimes I say this when I preach in different places, if it's one of the Old Testament books, that though this is called a minor prophet, minor because of its length, not minor because of its message. All scripture is equally given by inspiration of God. But uh, thinking of his contemporary Isaiah, he has a book of 66 chapters that we uh, study, and here's a book of just uh, seven chapters, so it's a much, much smaller portion of scripture but nonetheless that was who he was contemporary with and something else that's important I think is how often the Old Testament names were so significant Micah is a name that's become more popular I think today uh, certainly in Christian circles I have a nephew his name is Micah and uh, it's good to have biblical names I'm hoping to prepare a sermon uh, before long on Josiah. So these endings, or I spoke this morning about Elijah, and uh, in saying that, then there's something about the Lord in those last names, the last part of the names anyway, and uh, that's given away in the J-A-H. Like for instance, let me illustrate it this way, if we were to say, and maybe we've sung, I didn't pay close attention, the word hallelujah. I know we said alleluia, the Greek version, but praise the Lord, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So you've spoken Hebrew and Greek here as we worship together. But the name Micah means who is like the Lord. Now, isn't that interesting? When we ask that question, who is like our God? We have a man named Micah who says, who is like the Lord? So whenever you say his name, who is like the Lord? That's kind of what his life was like concerning his name. And then he demonstrates what the Lord is like as God led him by his spirit to pen these words for us. So um, who is like the Lord? 
Well, we've already answered that question, haven't we? No one, the living and true God, there is none like him. Now, since he was a contemporary of Isaiah, the time of writing would be around 700 B.C., so 700 years before the birth of Christ, he ministered these words. One of the themes that you find if you read the entire book is the concern that he has for the poor and the oppressed. And uh, when I think of the ministry of Christ, of how he was fulfilling prophecy to do just that, to those who certainly most of all needed his salvation, but the ministry of healing that took place under Christ and the way the common people heard him gladly, the scriptures tell us. Well, certainly Micah had that kind of heart for others, especially for the poor and oppressed. And considering some other facts about uh, this particular book of Micah, just a couple other few things I'd like to share. One is just a brief outline. If you were to take uh, this book and seek to outline it, I'm going to give you three points to suggest to you. If you read in chapters 1 and 2, you'll see the disobedient nations. And then in chapters 3 through 5, the disobedient rulers. And then finally, a little bit of a change in tone, obviously, chapter 6 and 7, you have God's case against his people, and we've seen that, but also we see God's mercy and grace to his people as well. So uh, you do find those themes here as you would outline the book. One of the important facts concerning this book, speaking of Isaiah as his contemporary, some of the things that we learn concerning the Messiah that generally we think about more probably at Christmas time are found in the book of Isaiah. But one of the great truths we find in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is the actual town prophesied where Christ would be born. And that, of course, is Bethlehem. So there, 700 years before the fact, it is prophesied by this prophet Micah. And remember, too, concerning prophets, they had a message that had to tell forth in their day, but sometimes there was the telling of the future as well. You had both aspects of ministry, the pastoral ministry, the preaching ministry, and then some things that were future. But uh, also here in this particular book, we found that there is a day that comes when Israel repents and God will forgive. And that's the beauty of what we've been seeing here in this passage and other passages that we've read as a part of our worship, how God is long-suffering, how God is compassionate, how God delights in mercy, how God is gracious and kind and good, and all these other aspects of his character. Now, as we conclude with these initial statements about this book, um, one of the things that you should seek to do or we should seek to do as believers is seeing Christ in the Old Testament and of course when we look at this passage that we've been studying we know that the way that our sins are forgiven the way that we are pardoned is through the work of Christ ultimately a work that the Old Testament saint was looking forward to and now we look back as a completed fact but uh, Christ is certainly in all the scripture and uh, who is like the Lord, could be said of who is like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the verses that's been considered a key verse is Micah 6, 8, if you'd like to note that, which says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, 
to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So as we spoke about the attributes this morning, the attributes that you would only find in God and then the attributes that you would see imperfectly in ourselves, certainly there's an attribute for us uh, to be just, uh, to love mercy, to be merciful people and seeking to do God's will as he commands us. So that gives us some of the background of this book, this brief uh, section here of this uh, minor prophet, as it's called. But again, as I said, not minor at all as far as its message. But secondly, as we've talked about God's attributes, I want us to look at an examination of contrasting attributes. An examination of contrasting attributes. I'd like for us to go back to our text that we focus on today. And uh, I'm going to read 18, 19, and 20, but then our focus will be on the latter part of verse 18 and verse 19. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. An examination of contrasting attributes. When we look at verse 18, the latter part from what we have studied this morning, we see it begins in this way in the latter part of verse 18. He retaineth not his anger forever. Anger. What are we speaking of biblically when we speak of the anger of God? One of the Hebrew scholars who sought to define terms from the Old Testament scriptures in particular says that anger is that which demonstrates itself in hard breathing. That which demonstrates itself in hard breathing. We have seen angry people, haven't we? Maybe we've been there ourselves at times. But when I see this and I hear what this particular scholar is saying, I think of something I've seen actually somewhat in person, but sometimes through cartoons of a raging bull, how it's pawing the ground and how they'll demonstrate with the you know, the, the breath escaping from its nose and may stir up dust and, you know, how that, so a raging bull, an angry bull. And I could tell you some stories that I know that are true of angry bulls. And uh, nonetheless, we get the idea. Well, we know people generally when they're angry, you can tell and if they're very, very angry, then it demonstrates itself and how they carry themselves and their reactions and their body movements, things like that. But when we speak of our God, and this is true, it gets the idea across to us. It gets the picture across to us. He is a God who intently hates all sin. That's what we're speaking of. When we speak of the anger of God, he intently hates all sin. And of course, as we've already established this morning, the attributes of God are perfect attributes, everything about him, because he's a perfect God. So God who is angry is perfect, righteous anger, righteous indignation. And 
we also know them, as we'll see here, that the scripture teaches that it is an attribute of God in his anger. So let's speak about that here in just a moment by looking at an individual who preached a sermon that is still known today, a sermon that's still in print, but in our current context of where we live, it would not be a popular sermon, but nonetheless yet a biblical sermon. The man who preached this sermon was another well-known historical figure, so here I go again with a little biography in the midst of the sermon, Jonathan Edwards. That's the name that uh, is known to us. He is considered by some one of the greatest theological minds that America has ever produced. But he lived from the period 1703 to 1758. And he, like our preacher this morning that we saw, Samuel Davies, was involved in the Great Awakening. God blessed his ministry in that first Great Awakening, which took place roughly from about the mid-1730s till 1750. But in 1741, he preached a sermon. The title of that sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, as I said, that's not a really popular theme today. It's more so God in the hands of angry sinners. That's where we've come to. But nonetheless, the sermon he preached was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in 1741. And it's probably certainly the most well-known of his sermons. But Edwards himself, being gifted as he was, was not without uh, difficulty in ministry. He desired, if you can imagine this, to have a church that focused on a converted membership. And because of some of the controversies he was involved with, he was dismissed from his congregation. But uh, from that, he became a missionary to uh, Indians uh, there in New England, where he ministered. And then actually in 1757, he accepted an appointment to Princeton University, the same place where Samuel Davies was also serving. So he has that background concerning his ministry. But I want to focus just for a couple of moments, not on the person, Jonathan Edwards, but on that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I went to public high school, not too far from here, Newcastle, at that time, Newcastle Chrysler High School. I think the Chrysler has been since dropped since that entity doesn't exist in Newcastle anymore, but uh, Newcastle, Indiana. And I remember, if you can believe this, in one of my high school classes, we actually read and had some study of sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, I can also remember the teacher, and he was uh, right out of the 60s hippie generation. You know, he still looked like it. So it's something he probably did begrudgingly, but it was in the book, so we, we, we dealt with it. But for me, it was something different in the way of perspective. But when we speak of this sermon title, which was based on Deuteronomy thirty two thirty five, that text says, their foot shall slide in due time. That was his text. We know that according to Psalm seven eleven, that God is a just judge. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 90 verse 11 tells us, who knows? It asks the question, who knows the power of your anger? And as we read our portion of scripture here today, we see very clearly, he retaineth not his anger forever. But he is a God, a just God who is angry. And so sinners 
in the hands of an angry God. Now, we may think, especially in the context in which we live today and things that we hear, that this was just an Old Testament concept. But it's not just an Old Testament concept because in John chapter 3, that great chapter of so many wonderful truths of Christ speaking to Nicodemus, he says, Jesus says in John three thirty six, the wrath of God abides on him. If we do not have Christ as our own, the wrath of God will abide upon us. Or Romans 1.18, the apostle Paul speaks that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. So it's still a true uh, doctrine, a true attribute of God, no matter where you're looking in all the scriptures. Now, for instance, we have the sermon titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You can go and find in the modern heresy section uh, of books that are called Christian. All right. And I use quotation marks intentionally god is not mad at you well that's just the opposite of what we're hearing from this passage of what we understand the scriptures teaching so it's important that we understand that god has righteous perfect anger but in saying that i want to take just a few brief little snippets from this sermon it's not a lengthy sermon it's one that you can read probably even downloaded somewhere on the internet it's there and uh, I was actually given another copy that I knew it's public domain I don't think there's any real copyright laws on it so anyone can publish it but it's a brief sermon definitely worth reading let me just give you a, a few snippets a few samples of the things that Jonathan Edwards was saying and let me say this before I read this I've heard different accounts apparently he was not a boisterous type of man he was not one who you know stomped and yelled and screamed these words he spoke them uh, pretty calmly uh, maybe had a manuscript that he read from I'm not sure exactly but I know the effect of this sermon was unbelievable that people were crying out for mercy in the service that he at time paused his sermon went down to minister to people who were under such conviction that God was using his word to convict them. So it was certainly one sermon of many that was used during the Great Awakening period in the first Great Awakening. So a few little portions. He says, they, meaning the unsaved, are now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God. All you that were never born again are in the hands of an angry God. And I want to give you a more extensive section toward the end of his sermon that he definitely is getting his point across to his hearers. Oh, sinner, he says, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, Nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one 
moment. It is an everlasting wrath that you must suffer it to all eternity. And this is the truth of God's word concerning the doctrine of hell. It is very clear to us that Jonathan Edwards understood that and was passionate to proclaim the word of God and the anger of God to his hearers. So remember this concerning the direction of God's wrath. Either, as we read or referenced from John 3.36, the wrath of God must abide upon us or someone must take the wrath that we deserve. And that is the beauty of our salvation. The wrath that we deserve, the Father has already directed that wrath to His Son. His Son has borne that wrath for us. And so where the Father could not look upon us because He's a holy God, holy, 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 He cannot look upon any of us in and of ourselves but he can see us through the Son. He sees us through Christ. And John 17, Christ's great high priestly prayer, says how much we are loved just like he is by the Father because we are Christ. We can sing truly, I am his and he is mine by grace because the wrath that we deserved has been placed upon Christ. But if we are not in Christ, One of the phrases that I'm going to conclude with that Edwards used is being out of Christ. The Apostle Paul, one of his favorite phrases was in Christ. And there's only one of two places we can be here this afternoon. Either we are in Christ or we are out of Christ. One of two destinies. See, these are not popular things. These are not the themes we're hearing in today's even so-called church, but heaven or hell. And Christ spoke of both of them. And he spoke, as you see the New Testament scriptures, as much or more of hell than of heaven. So flee from the wrath to come, John Bunyan would have said. Flee from the wrath to come. And that was the uh, heartfelt cry of Jonathan Edwards in this sermon. Let me sum it up this way, too, when it comes to God's anger. We are... Certainly ones who can look at our world situation, even as close as where we live. And there are things that can certainly anger us with righteous indignation. The things that are happening, the things that are going on all around us. But I can say this confidently, that we are to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. We are to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. So there it is, the anger of God, the anger of God. But it doesn't stop there, does it? As you see in the passage, let's go back to verse 18. He retains not his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in mercy. Our God delights in mercy. So a contrast, that's why I said contrasting attributes. Yes, the anger of God is clearly an attribute. But also the mercy of God is an attribute that we need to examine for just a moment. What is a good definition of mercy? Well, I have a couple of them. I try to do things, if I can, succinctly. 
because it's easier to remember. Uh, the lengthy definitions are out there. You can find them, you know, with our documents, especially as Presbyterians, uh, they can be found. But succinctly, mercy is covenant loyalty or covenant devotion. But if you sum it up in one word, it's kindness. And certainly mercy historically is not getting what we do deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And in looking at mercy, we understand too from the scriptures how clearly this truth is articulated over and over and over. Isn't it interesting that one of the Psalms, Psalm 136, when you read it, at the end of every verse, it says this, these words, His mercy endureth forever. Every verse, His mercy endureth forever. So there we have it. He delights in mercy. Psalm 103 says His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. We also read that He's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He is merciful and gracious. So, God is a a merciful God, a God who delights in mercy. But we also see then, in verse 19, he will turn again and he will have compassion upon us. A similar word, but yet different. What is a good definition for compassion? Again, centering on brief and succinct definitions. Now, we we probably think of compassionate people and having compassion It's to mean to have pity upon, to have pity. And that's one of the things that we have sung this morning as we've sung about compassion. I don't know in our songs if we said the word compassion, but we did sing the word pity. And that's what compassion is. God has taken pity upon us. He is compassionate. And uh, even you think of the work of Christ, the ministry, he looked upon these sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion upon them. He took pity upon them. And, of course, he acted in what he saw. In Psalm 111, Psalm 112, and Psalm 145, it's interesting that compassion in those passages is always connected to grace. Isn't that interesting? That compassion and grace are almost like hand in glove and going together. Compassion and grace. Because I guess what you think about, if a person has that feeling of compassion, that sense of pity, then you hope that they act upon it, right? When Jesus saw these multitudes and had compassion, he acted upon it. And what we're going to read in just a moment as an illustration that Christ gave in teaching us, that when a person had compassion, a good, clear illustration biblically for us is that he acted upon the the compassion that he had. So we're going to see that from a New Testament standpoint. And now's the time. Right now is good as any and uh, the time of our sermon period that we have. So if you'll uh, now turn just for a moment, you can keep your place here in Micah, but we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read several verses of a parable and I want us to see demonstrate exactly Uh, what compassion leads to or what pity leads to in the teaching of Jesus. We're looking at Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 30. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, two denarii, two whole day's wages. That's a lot of money. You think of what you make in a week. I work five days. I think most people do. Two days of your pay he gave to the innkeeper. I continue, gave them to the host and said to him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy. Now, we read compassion, but we see again the connection of terms, the similarity of terms. The man said, He that showed mercy. Then Jesus said unto him, Go and do thou likewise. So here's the illustration. Who is my neighbor? And Christ demonstrates, as he often did, you think of his conversations and his ministry in the New Testament, that the religious people had no time for this wounded man, for this man who had been hurt and left half dead, as Christ said. Two religious men walked out of the way to get away from this man to do nothing. But Samaritans weren't necessarily very well-liked people. You know, people have always had their prejudices, and the Jews did as well, and one of them would have been the Samaritans. But this Samaritan, who's been categorized historically as the good Samaritan, when he saw this man, the Bible clearly says he had compassion. And what did compassion lead to? It led to action. He went to where this man was. He tended to his need. He placed him on his own uh, horse. He took him to the innkeeper. He gave two today's wages to care for him. If more is needed, I will do that. And so Jesus said, who do you think of these three people demonstrated neighborly action, compassion? They said, well, the one that showed mercy. But what did Jesus say in conclusion to that parable? Go and you do likewise. So do you see the connection here of compassion or pity leading to action? You know, think of this congregation. I was looking on the table out there again, and it doesn't have to be just on what's on the table. Those are in foreign places. But I looked at missionary family after missionary family that were burdened for people in other places, had compassion, and they wanted to go and to take the gospel message there. And there's other ways. This is... You know, I don't see it so much as a, you know, a gospel passage with the Samaritan, but certainly it's Christian action. It's a Christian empathy. It's the way a Christian should live, but going there and having concern. I shared about uh, being in Haiti and, uh, you know, seeing the uh, needs there. I can remember sometimes just the overwhelming feeling. You know, I had studied French, but most of them spoke Creole, so some of them didn't know French well. But, you know, a lot of them did. But just driving, and I, I didn't tell this part. 
Actually, I don't. Did I, did I tell you the Haiti illustration in the morning sermon? Well, here's one of the aspects. Whatever I told you, I don't remember. <laughs> well, I, I was on what was called the tap tap, the, the public transportation. Now, this was a guy that they had rented his tap tap. He wasn't a believer, so he's driving like a crazy man through those hills and windy roads. But we were at a place of market. And literally, it's like the multitudes. There were so many people parting for us in the streets that we could drive through very slowly. And I saw all these Haitian people. And I just looked and I thought, Lord, you know, I don't have the language to be able to, but I had maybe the sense of how people feel when they see multitudes and know their need of salvation. If you get the picture that I'm trying to give and almost the helplessness that I felt, of course, nothing is too big for our God and he will accomplish his purpose. But that's the feeling I felt of just almost like the parting of the ways with this multitude of people and just wanting ones to have compassion. And these Haitian nationals were doing that, the compassion that they had because so many people had so little. One of the things that we did, I didn't really go into my ministry there, but we were teaching, more of a teaching ministry for going as a pastor. And they asked us all to bring ties. Uh, you know, here's my Protestant orange tie today, all right? especially from the Dutch. And we won't go there. That's another sermon, maybe Reformation Sunday, but I got my orange on here, Mr. Protestant, you know. Uh, but one of the things they wanted us to do was to bring ties. And I remember meeting some younger men who sensed their call to the ministry. And it was like Christmas in whatever month we were there. I think it was April. But the ties and how they were joyous and when we fed them and we cared for them. Many of these men didn't have vehicles and they had walked for miles to come for the teaching. I mean, just situation after situation humbled me. And one of the great blessings I had because of the language was I mentioned Pastor Exumi. His son served as my interpreter in the evening service when I preached there in Haiti. It just, it all comes back to me when I start thinking about it. But I don't want it to be, you know, just having this kind of heart when I go to some foreign country, because I've been to many, but to have that kind of heart for where we are. May I say it this way, that God has called us to bloom where we are planted. And I can tell you, Pittsburgh's not one of my favorite places that I've ever been. I've been there a long time, or the Pennsylvania area. I much prefer my Hoosier homeland, but that's not where God has placed me and bloom where we're planted. God has called us for a purpose. And uh, one of these days, if Pastor Jeff invites me back, I'm going to preach a sermon on the mystery of providence because it's one of my heartfelt things. But uh, that's for another time and another place, God willing. Compassion, compassion. But what you see, let me sum up what I've just said this way. You saw the religious and the Pharisee or the Levite, you saw the religious in the Good Samaritan story, and then what I would see as the work, the ministry of the regenerated, the difference of the care, the compassion that is had. So let's go back to our passages. We're coming now to our conclusion. Who is like a God unto thee that pardons iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger, and now we have seen today he delights in mercy. He will turn again and have compassion on us. So that's the point. What we see in the Samaritan is seen obviously to a perfect degree in what God has toward us, the pity upon us, the compassion upon us. But he will have that. He will subdue our iniquities and that will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. The conclusion. I'm calling this the promises and encouragements 
summarized in the book of Micah, the promises and encouragements in this final verse. What will God do, the God who delights in mercy, the God who has compassion? He's going to do two things. Subdue our iniquities, cast our sins into the sea. Now, if you're like me, and maybe you are, maybe you're not, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, if we're in Christ, but when I see that subdue our iniquities, it, it's like I don't quite grasp it. And sometimes we hear the saying, lost in the translation, that's a little bit of what we have here. And I appreciate Amanda playing the closing hymn this morning was the song that uh, was written by Samuel Davies based on this passage. And he actually does the translation in the song. And so I'm going to do it now. Subduing our iniquities literally means to tread them underfoot. God treads our iniquities underfoot. He treats them with contempt. Now, I just can't help but think when it comes in the big picture of the ultimate scheme of things is that Christ treads Satan under his foot. The God of this world, the enemy of us all, he will do what? I will bruise your heel, but your head will be crushed. Christ treads him underfoot. I like that idea. I have a picture etched in my mind that has always been there of what it means to be trampled underfoot, to be treated with contempt. My two neighbors and I, Brian and Joe, had gotten a small snake in a jar with their help. He actually bit Brian. It was a garter snake, but it still brought blood. And I brought that snake home. Now, my mom hated snakes. She was terrified of snakes. She wasn't home at the moment, but dad was. And dad didn't want me bringing any snake, especially with mom coming home. So I'll never forget this picture, especially from my young people that are here. All right, I'm going to step over this side just for a little bit. I had it in a jar. Dad let out the snake, and he let it out on the driveway. And dad sized 10 or 11, whatever it was, three stomps. That snake was no more. He treated that snake with contempt. It was gone. Now do we get a picture of how God subdues those iniquities. He tramples them underfoot. He removes them. They're gone. But not only that, there's a second part. Not only does he subdue our iniquities, treat them with contempt, tramp them underfoot, he will cast them, all those sins, into the depths of the sea. And let me give you a simple understanding because we've seen the six ways this morning of God forgiving our sins, the illustrations Casting our sins into the sea is a place of intentional non-remembrance. Casting our sins into the sea is a place of intentional non-remembrance. Remember, he's God, but he's chosen not to remember our sins against us. See, that's what true forgiveness is. In a marital relationship or in a personal relationship, a lot of times what happens when forgiveness is asked for, okay, I forgive you, but down the road, I'm going to bring that back up again. Or down the road, I'm going to bring it back up again. No, you let that be. You, they've asked for forgiveness. You, leave, you trample it underfoot. You put it in the sea. Yeah, you have the ability to remember, but choose not to remember. That's the idea of forgiveness because we can remember if we want to remember. But God has chosen not to remember our sins against us, to trample them underfoot, and to cast them into the depths of the sea. 
That's what he's done for us. So let's conclude with this final phrase from the sermon of Jonathan Edwards. That same sermon, let me pick it back up again at his conclusion. Here's how he pleaded with his congregation. And now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying out with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace, your compassion, for all of your wonderful, amazing attributes. We thank you, Father, that you are the God who is the only true God, and certainly you are incomprehensible beyond our human comprehension. But you are the God who has condescended to our need, the God who so loved us that you gave your only Son, that if we believe in him, we will not perish, but have eternal life. Father, we thank you for these truths here in this passage, 700 years before the birth of Christ. As the birthplace of Christ is prophesied and the truths are expounded, here we are today, so many years after, and we see the power of your word because it's the living word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. And we thank you, Father, that through the word we are thoroughly furnished unto all good works. O oh Lord, we know that we are not worthy, but you're a God who is absolutely worthy. And we seek to glorify you. And we give you thanks and praise for extending such mercy and grace to us. We do pray again for your blessing upon these hearers, these brothers and sisters, for the ministry of this church and other churches of like precious faith. And Lord, may we truly go and do likewise. May our hearts be challenged and changed that we will seek to live out the gospel. And as we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, may we do as illustrated here today, love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, we thank you for all things, and we thank you for our salvation in Christ alone, in whose name we pray, amen.